When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to All the Wiser, a show about hope and possibility on the other side of pain. I'm your host, Kimmy Culp. Earlier this summer, a historic announcement was made by the Human Rights Campaign. For the first time ever, they declared a state of emergency for the LGBTQ community. The announcement came after a wave of anti- LGBTQ plus legislation. The group's president, Kelly Robinson, spoke to the threats against the community that are in many cases resulting in violence. Just a few weeks ago here in Southern California, Lori Carlton, a clothing store owner, was shot and killed after an argument about the rainbow pride flag hanging outside her store. One of my core values, and one of the reasons I started this show, is because I believe that words matter. They have the power to inspire violence, and they have the power to inspire tolerance and love. Today, I am honored to bring you the story of how one trans woman is using her words to remind all of us of our shared humanity. And she's doing so one flight at a time. This yearning to be female would not go away. And I would suppress it. And it would come back. And I would suppress it. And so I didn't know what to do with it. And I was starting to get concerned about it. And that's about the time that Caitlyn Jenner showed up on the scene. And she was featured on the cover of Vanity Fair. Yes, exactly. Call me Caitlin, it said. And I remember looking at that photo and being like, wow, if if she can pull that off, then I can do that too. Haley Holm is a veteran Air Force pilot. In total, she completed 22 combat missions in Afghanistan as part of Operation Enduring Freedom. But before the war and the pilot training, before the graduations and the diploma, Haley grew up in a military household as a little boy named Jim. Being from a military family meant that they moved around a lot. Every few years, the family would pick up and move somewhere new. But the feeling inside the walls of the home always remained the same. Tense, regimented, disciplined. You were expected to be, you know, obedient. I suppose that's true in most households, but in this household it was more, I guess the word is authoritarian. In the summers, the family would spend time at his grandparents' farm in Iowa. That's where Jim found moments of joy with the animals 
spending time in nature. But he was always hyper-aware of this unspoken pressure coming from his father to be masculine, do man things, be manly. Luckily, Jim enjoyed many of those traditionally male activities, which pleased his father. I always liked building things. I liked working on things, the car or helping with the house, painting and all of that kind of stuff. The things that most boys, young boys would like is what I liked. The Tonka trucks and, you know, all of that stuff. That was me. I was the dirty little kid. (laughs) And siblings? I was the second of two. I have a sister. She and I were never really that close. And I don't really know why that was. There were times certainly where we stuck together, you know, moving around like we did. We certainly bonded during that time. But I feel like when I see other siblings interact from other families, that was not really my relationship with her. When do you first remember thinking about your gender, experiencing it, questioning it? Um, There was a time when I must have been five or six where my sister got these very cute tap shoes And I was like, man, I really want those. (laughs) Those are cute. I remember being very confused as to why I like those and why I couldn't also have that. Yeah. I understood the part where I wasn't in tap, so there was that. (laughs) But also, I preferred my sister's clothes over mine most of the time. My my dad was gone a lot on business. When he was gone, I would always ask if I could wear like a nightgown to bed. So that was like the treat. And there were things like that that were indulged by my mother. And how is the the whisper growing in your mind and your soul about your gender? You know, I never thought about it. It wasn't something that we talked about as a family. It wasn't something I talked about with my parents. But there were all these hints of desire for me. And what were the hints of desire? So, like, there was a time where around the same time as the tap shoes, there were, like, the whole tights and, like, the the whole dancing outfit. I wanted that so bad. And so like at one time I stole it. And for some reason I decided, and I was really little, four or five, somewhere around that time. And I decided that underneath the dining room table was where I should get dressed. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm under the table putting this on. And my father at that time comes in and he decides that that's not acceptable. And his response to that was, I don't know if I'd call it violent. That's a little too strong. But it was scary to me. There was discipline involved. It was very binary guidance. Yeah, It was not a pleasant experience. And that became a theme 
in my growing up. And there were all these suggestions, especially in adolescence, from him about LGBTQ themes and how unacceptable that is. And we'd see something on the news about gay rights, for instance, or AIDS or whatever. And there would be some kind of very conservative commentary from him about that to make it known that that's what we should be also believing in, that that's wrong and that we shouldn't engage in that. And that kind of activity is detrimental to society. And so that came out to me as early as four or five years old. And it came out during that dress up session. Yeah. And it was startling to me. I guess maybe that's the first time I ever saw that side of him. And so I would imagine your home is clearly, as you described, not a safe space for you to be curious and explore this aspect of yourself. Did you feel like you just shut it down internally out of fear? Yeah, I think that's the... Just suppress. Suppress. Yeah. What expectation do you, or did you feel that there was an expectation from your parents about, you know, your future, who you were going to be in the world? There was always like this discussion about being a good citizen, being responsible, paying your bills on time, those kinds of things. But in terms of like the overall outcome and like what I was to do with myself and uh, professionally or whatever, there wasn't a whole lot of guidance there. I guess that was good because that allowed me to kind of explore myself what I wanted to do. I wasn't really contained in that. There was a time where I was I was very involved in music growing up. And so piano and singing in the choir at church and um, the bell choir as a kid and then clarinet and saxophone. And then in high school, I was an all-state musician. I was thinking like, well, music is what I like to do, so maybe I should do that. But that's one of the times where parents stepped in and they're like, well, you know, the professional prospects of a musician are not great. And so getting into high school, I had this existential crisis one day at breakfast where all of my friends are like studying for the SATs and doing all of this stuff. And I've been completely focused on music and had this moment at the breakfast table where I realized that I needed to plan my life. (laughs) (laughs) And for some reason, breakfast that day is when it had to happen. And so I voiced this to my father and I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do with myself. And he was like, well, what about that flying thing? You always wanted to do that. Why not do that? I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, I'll go do that. And so I was kind of pushed into computer science and I ended up in management information systems in college, which actually ended up being quite good for me in the long run. So as you said, you go to college, but eventually you end up in the military. Tell me 
about the decision to go into the military and a little bit about your trajectory there, what your roles and responsibilities were. Well, the flying thing in the military was always fascinating to me. About the time I was curious about pilots and flying is when the first Top Gun movie came out. And I was old enough to like realize that that was really cool and that I really wanted to do that. And there were always air shows where I was living and we would go on base and go see these air shows and I'd see all these fighter pilots and all of these cool airplanes. And so that was always like kind of a childhood dream to do that. How old were you during this time? I think that the first air show was when I was like five, probably. And then, you know, quickly fascinated by that six or seven years old, probably when I was really wanting, realized that that was something I really wanted to do. The day that Jim graduated from college at 22 years old was the day he was sworn in as an officer in the United States Air Force. Immediately, he started pilot training. There were 40 students in the class. The top scoring students would fly the fighter and bomber planes, and the rest would fly cargo planes. Jim was one of the top. So what were you flying? I ended up with a B-1, which is a supersonic bomber. So I was pretty happy with something that was fast and pointy like that. Once he finished pilot training, Jim was sent to Abilene, Texas, to learn how to fly the B-1. And six months later, he was preparing to go to combat. I didn't have to go to the desert and live in a tent. So the Air Force typically doesn't do that, which was kind of nice. But also, like, there's a reason why the Army calls it the Chair Force. And that's that's pretty much why. But we ended up on this island in the Indian Ocean called Diego Garcia. And our whole squadron went there and we would fly into Afghanistan. And talk me through some of those 22 missions, those bombing runs, because the the environments surrounding them and as pilots, what you're enduring. Can you explain? Sure. You would start with a six-hour flight over the ocean into the combat zone, and then you would spend anywhere from four to 12 or 16 hours in the combat zone and then you would fly back. So I had multiple missions over 20 hours, one that was 23 and a half hours, several quite a bit shorter than that, 14 or 16 hours long. But long missions, there was no reserve crew on board. You didn't have extras. It was only you. And for us in the B-1, there was a, a pilot and a co-pilot. I was at that time a co-pilot. And then there were two navigators, so to speak, in the back, one that ran offensive systems, so all the bombing and all the programming of all the GPS bombs, one that ran defensive systems, so jamming and keeping track of who was looking at us and why. And again, there were no extras. It was just us. So you basically had to stay awake for 20 hours at a time. You could take a little nap here and there, but for me... Naps were not part of the equation in a combat zone. 
one of the things they would give us is essentially amphetamines that keep us awake. And so you would take those things and just stay awake for all this time. And then you would get back and have to take Ambien to go to sleep because otherwise you'd be awake for like three days. I'm surprised my heart didn't explode. (laughs) And I think when we talked, you described it as a killing machine. At the time, or looking back, is there a mental and emotional toll on that aspect of it? Well, there were some themes around that job. And some of that is just not human. It's not really normal to go out and kill people. And yet here we are faced with this idea that that's our business. That's what we do for work. Everything we do is centered around learning how to kill people and break their stuff. That was the mentality. It was very much the term we use is fangs out. And that's what you brought to work every day, was this very aggressive kind of skill set and mentality. And coping with that was interesting. I, I think I was more gentle than most. For me, I took to heart the Sun Tzu Art of War, which said, you should know your enemy. To me, what that meant was studying and learning about Afghanistan and the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. And why did these groups hate me? Why were they causing harm to the United States? And why did they want to hurt me while I was there? And why was I there to begin with? Or why was I going there? And so I really needed to understand all of that stuff. Because if I didn't, I think that it would have harmed me more. Yeah. And so a lot of these guys took that coping strategy to a different place. And it was to cope with what we had to do. So if I just really dislike these people or I express that somehow, then maybe maybe that will help me do what I have to do. And I couldn't do that. In addition to the emotional processing Jim was doing to cope with the realities of his job, he was still at battle internally with his yearning to be female. He kept a box of women's clothes to experiment with wearing at home. One time, a fellow pilot was dropping him off after work. He saw the box. If he was outed by this pilot, that meant Jim would be discharged because this was during the time of the don't ask, don't tell policy. The policy barred openly gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender persons from military service, but with the caveat that no one could ask or harass closeted service members. Jim was terrified that he had been caught. The next day, he called up his fellow pilot and explained that it was simply a box of Halloween costumes. Luckily, the guy bought it. You've said you had some really strong friendships in the Air Force, which doesn't surprise me, considering the circumstances. Mm -hmm. There were several people that I bonded strongly with, several that I went through training with, because, you know, it's typical, you go through these traumatic experiences, not that training is traumatic, but it's like, 
these highly stressful situations and you band together and you end up getting to know these people and bonding with them in a way that you maybe wouldn't otherwise if you just worked nine to five in some office somewhere. But I didn't feel like I had a lot of friends in the Air Force because I think that primarily the military was really not where I belonged. It was something that I look back on, I'm proud of, and I think it definitely shaped who I am as a professional and as a human being. It definitely gave me opportunities that I wouldn't have had otherwise. And a lot of leadership experience at a very, very young age. And so I'm grateful for all of that. But I'm also like, I would never do it again. And I'm glad it's over with. It didn't define me, I guess. Jim got out of the military in 2012. He decided to take a year off to just relax, be quiet, do some fishing and skiing, enjoy being outdoors. A friend from Abilene, Texas, introduced him to Taos, New Mexico, which became a refuge for Jim over the years. It was the natural choice for his move, and it was in Taos where he found the courage to finally explore the voice inside of him that was longing to be female. I'd been dating some, and I was actually quite pleasantly surprised by the dating pool there in the small town. You had a girlfriend for a long time, is that right? Yes, and she, she and I were living together, and we were really in love with each other. It was kind of the perfect life. But I had similar tendencies to what we talked about when I was younger, growing up, where this yearning to be female would not go away, and I would suppress it, and it would come back, and I would suppress it. And so I didn't know what to do with it, and I was starting to get concerned about it, and that's about the time that Caitlyn Jenner showed up on the scene, and she was featured on the... Cover of Vanity Fair. Yes, exactly. Call me Caitlyn, it said... And I remember looking at that photo and being like, wow, if, if she can pull that off, then I can do that too. It is incredible when I think about people, public figures, speaking out, sharing their stories. They never really know the ripple effect, right, of what and whose lives they changed. Right. Yeah. Because I imagine that cover and her sharing her story created a a space for others to, like yourself, really lean into this idea that you could take that leap to. It certainly made it possible in my mind. This went from some kind of a dark curiosity, is I suppose how it felt, to being something that maybe I should explore. So you see Caitlin on this cover, which clearly is a really big moment for you. What is your first step that you take? Well, the same as with combat. I started reading and researching and absorbing as much information as I could about what this meant 
am I transgender? Am I not? Is this some sort of weird fetish? Something I need to not do? Or what? What is this hormone thing? What are all these surgeries about? And how much is this going to cost me? That's a very important concept of cost because there's so much more cost than just financial cost, especially for me at this point. What, what was the cost? Well, I thought that this would be like the end of my life as I knew it. Not in the sense that I would die from it, but in the sense that everything I had would probably go away. My relationships would fall apart. I was afraid that family was going to be an issue. I was afraid that financially that would be very difficult, not just because of the healthcare costs associated with it, but also because the statistics on how many transgender people stayed employed was not good. I had this great job in Taos and this life that I built for myself, this career, this whole new career that I had built for myself. And, and now what do I do with myself? How am I going to continue to live and afford to eat? Well, yeah, and it's, you know, for anybody who's looking from the outside and saying, oh, it's a hasty decision and, you know, you'll regret it hasty when you're evaluating the potential cost as losing, potentially losing human connection, your family, your friends, losing your profession, your professional opportunities, going into financial distress. Exactly. I mean, the desire for to live authentically who you are, you're weighing the cost, right? Entirely. Yeah. And so I decided what I had to do was I needed to go somewhere where I didn't know anybody and I needed to go out in public as a woman and see what it felt like. So I had this business trip coming up to Minneapolis and I showed up a few days early and I decided that Minneapolis was the place for that. I didn't know anybody. What could go wrong? (laughs) Coming up, Jim steps out as Haley for the first time after taking a trip to the unofficial motherland of all women, Sephora. Stay with us. All the Wiser is a one-for-one podcast. For every episode you hear, we donate $2,000 to our guest's favorite charity. For today's episode, Haley chose the Paseo Project. The Paseo Project is an arts nonprofit based in Taos, New Mexico. They are working to transform the streets of Taos through year-round free community-based events and art programs. You can find out more about them on their website, paseoproject.org. And so um, I didn't know how to do makeup. My hair was short, so I was going to have to get a wig. 
I found this wig store <laughs> and I called him and I was like, this is an interesting request, but I need your help. Can you help me? And they were so cool about it. And I was like, okay, great. And then they sent me some pictures of things. And so I made an appointment to go in and talk. Did you with explain them. your why to them? I did. Oh, wow. Yeah, I explained all of it. I felt like because I didn't know anybody there, I didn't have anything to lose there. So I I love that the first people you told were the wig store employees. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And then um, I called Sephora and I, I basically had the same conversation with them. Like, I don't know what I'm doing and I really need someone to sit down with me if you have someone that has that time to do that, to kind of show me just the basics, teach me a little bit. And then of course, I'm going to buy a bunch of stuff from you. (laughs) So the forever makeup counter dilemma, if they do my free makeup, what do I have to buy? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Right. So they were, Sephora especially was just so into it. They, they were like, yes, you come in when we open and we'll spend you know, an hour or so with you and we'll set you up. And I was like, okay, well, I guess this is it. So I go online and I shop for some clothes that I think might fit me. And off I go to Minneapolis and I show up and I decide that I'm going to wear the outfit that I picked out because it looked nice and it fit properly and it felt good, and I would wear no makeup, and I bought these giant Jackie Onassis glasses, and I was like, I'll just cover my face with these sunglasses and walk quickly through the lobby and get to my car and get out the door. And so I go down the elevator, and luckily no one was on the elevator. No one. I didn't have to talk to anybody. And the elevator door is open, and there's this guy standing there, and he looks at me, and he gets these huge eyes, and I'm like, oh... That's not the reaction I was hoping for, but probably, okay, I'll just walk by him. So I zip past him and I walk through the lobby. It was like one of those moments of temporal distortion where the two minutes it took to walk through that lobby, in my mind, took, you know, 10 minutes. And I'm looking at people's reactions. I'm gauging these looks I'm getting from people. And I noticed that no one noticed. They were all locked into their world in the lobby of this hotel. And that was kind of an important realization. Yeah. And that kind of felt good because that meant that I wasn't really sticking out. So that was really the first, like, success, I suppose, is what I chalked that up to. And I get in my car, I get to the mall, I park and realize... When I walk in to the mall and I look at the directory, because I'm looking for Sephora, I realize that I'm on the opposite side of the mall from (laughs) Sephora, and I've got to do this like walk of shame through the mall (laughs) with these stupid glasses on. And it was very, you know, I began to sweat. and, And I get to Sephora, and there's this whole like welcoming committee for me. And these ladies were just so sweet and scooped me up and they spent way more than an hour on me and I probably needed it. And they really made me pretty. 
And that's the first time when I looked in the mirror and I had gotten the wig already. I looked in the mirror and I was like, I can do this. This is, this is okay. How did you feel in your skin that day looking? I mean, did it feel like coming home or I guess just a knowing? Like, Well, yeah, yeah. I, I spent the day shopping. I spent the day just doing what you would do on a normal day out on the town. I needed to look for things for the house. I needed to look for other normal things that we would do. And I, and I did that as Haley for the first time. And it felt so good. It just felt like I had spent my adolescence looking, like on the outside looking in, high school especially, like looking at kids that were confident and comfortable in their skin and wondering what that was like. This day was the first day where I felt like I was truly like, comfortable. I was truly not an outsider. How did you decide on the name Haley? So in high school, there was this girl I knew. We never dated, but I always thought that, I always thought she was beautiful and she was always kind and she was like one of the most graceful girls that I knew. And her name was Haley. And so I stole her name. And there was another girl that I knew named Autumn. And for the same reasons, I stole her name as my middle name. (laughs) And I actually changed my last name also. And that was a real struggle for me as to do I retain the name that I had, or is it time to let that go? And I decided that even though it would probably upset some people, that I needed to let that name go. And so I did. So you've had this trip, which to me sounds incredible, (laughs) that you had this warm embrace in the moment of going through the lobby and everyone's in their own head and not judging you, which it sounds like testing the waters of what this would mean for you. But I imagine now begins the brave work of having conversations. As you said, the stakes are high. What was that experience of sharing with your girlfriend, your family? How do you find the courage for those conversations? And I imagine there were some beautiful moments and some deeply painful ones. Yeah, I got home from Minneapolis and my girlfriend at the time that I was living with, she could tell something was up with me. I didn't want to talk about it and she just left it alone. And I don't remember what we were doing, but this song came on that was kind of sad (laughs) And I just lost it. I I broke down and started crying. And that's not, that was not me. I was like this, her nickname for me was Meatball. (laughs) 
I was I was this like lumberjack dude and bomber pilot meatball. That's right. And this strong, very masculine human. And I never cried like that. So she immediately knew something was wrong, of course. And then I just had to tell her I couldn't hold it in. And that was like within two hours of getting home. So I just told her. For me, it was like this massive release. For her, it was like the beginning of the end. I could see her immediate disappointment and confusion. And I didn't know what to expect after that initial reaction. I was hoping it wasn't going to be anger. Luckily, it wasn't. The next thing that came out of her mouth was, so what did these idiots sell you? (laughs) I want to see all this stuff that they sold you. And I was like, okay. So I go to my bag and I open it up and I show her all this makeup that I bought. And she's like, oh, that's actually kind of nice. I want that. (laughs) And, you know, (laughs) she's digging through all this stuff and she's like, well, yeah, I guess they did a decent job here. Um, They didn't scam you at Sephora. Right. And she was kind of sisterly with that. And that was very meaningful. I felt like maybe things were going to be okay. And so we didn't launch into some big conversation about what that meant for us in that moment. We just kind of went and had dinner and went about our lives. And over the course of the next couple of days and weeks, we started talking about how this was going to play out. What were the ground rules? Was I going to fully transition or was this going to be some kind of just thing on the side how is this going to work for us? I didn't know. I didn't know. I I knew that that day I felt so good about myself and so confident that I thought that this was probably going to be a full-time thing, but that I would gradually work my way into it. So I started working with a therapist on how to tackle that and what to do next. And what do you do next? Well, the therapist's suggestion was start with socks. <laughs> and I was like, okay, <laughs> okay, I'll start with socks. So I got rid of all of my old socks and I got new socks and I got girly socks and I got, I don't know, I got all kinds of different options to try. Socks are something that not everybody really notices, but you know that they're there, you know what you chose. So that was kind of a fun way to start. And that took place probably two or three weeks after the Minneapolis trip. And that's when things started getting more difficult for Jolie. It just started getting awkward in the house. And I guess I understand that. And what I expected was, well, if she was at least somewhat receptive initially, then eventually she'll be receptive to this part of it, I hope. Did you want to stay together? Well, I was deeply in love with her, and she was in love with me. And there was no question that marriage was probably in the works, or a possibility at least. But at that point, I didn't know. I knew that I loved her, and that I had a house 
a life with her and that seemed okay. So I was okay with continuing that. And her question too was, what does this mean for you sexually? Are you going to continue to be with me or is there going to be men involved or how is this going to work? And are you gay or what does this mean? And that's when I became very aware of the boxes that society tries to put us in. Mm -hmm. Am I a man? Am I a woman? Am I something in between? And what do I want to be? And am I gay or am I straight? Am I trans or am I intersex? What am I? Yeah. That was difficult. Now, at that point was when I had to define what success was for me. You know, and that's always such a tricky thing. What was, where did you ultimately land on what success was for you? I couldn't place it initially. I knew what success wasn't. And that's where I let it be. And success to me wasn't being a grotesque female imposter. I didn't want to be uncomfortable for people. I wanted to be fashionable. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be appropriate with my clothing choices and my style. I really didn't want to be awkward. Yeah. I really was more worried about other people. I didn't want things to be awkward with my friends or in public or whatever. And so that was the initial hack at what success was. It was really what it wasn't. So I imagine that felt, in a sense, safer, less riskier, that vision of your future self, right? From a societal standpoint, more more tolerance. Right, right. And so that thought process brought with it these sub-objectives. <laughs> this is me. You know, this is me, the planning person, yeah. the, the, um, the strategist. So how do I get from here to being not awkward in public and yeah. not an uncomfortable sight for people? Well, I'm awfully big, so maybe I need to be not so big. You lost 80 pounds, is that right? 80 pounds. Wow. Initially. It wasn't as difficult as I thought it would be. The hormone therapy drastically changed my muscle mass. It was very interesting the way my body processed fat is I was working out a lot. I stopped eating protein. I ate some protein, but I was almost entirely vegetarian for a while. I was doing a lot of cardio. I really love cycling, road biking. And so I was doing 100 miles a week on the road bike. And it was actually quite good for me. Yeah, mentally. You know, it was great. But I was watching my body lose fat from some places and get a little fat in some other place where I didn't usually get that. Yeah. The hips. The hips. The tummy. You know, yeah. So outside of Jolie and the employees of Sephora, when do you begin sharing with, well, first of all, your family, and how does that go? Well, uh, that was one of the major conversations that Jolie and I had was that my family is very conservative. This is not something that's going to be well-received, and for that reason, I'm not ready to talk to them about that. 
because I'm not ready to talk to my own family. I don't want to talk to her family about it. I'm not ready to talk to any of our friends about it, that it's kind of just under wraps for the time being. And we'll see when I'm ready, but I'm not ready now. And so she said, okay. About a month or two later, she came to me and she said, I can't not talk to people about this. I need support. Support. This is something I'm willing to work with you on, but you're going to have to let me talk to some people. We need some allies here. And so we talked about who those people would be. And so her friend Alix became one of those people. We had this gay friend, Rye. And so they were surprised, and then they were like, taken back by how interesting it all was that someone that is so masculine could possibly want this for themselves. And at that point, I had already started hormone therapy. Anyway, that continued for a while, and the conversations with them continued, and things seemed to ease with Jolie. It was definitely a relief for her to have people to talk to. But then it started wearing on her, and she became more distance from me and more concerned about me shaving my legs or what was in the laundry. These things started picking away at her. And so around that time, I was kind of planning my exit. I felt that the writing was on the wall, that maybe things weren't going as well as they could be with Julie. And maybe what I should do is move on to a different town for a while, go somewhere where I didn't know anybody. Where'd you go? Portland, Oregon, because obviously there's mountains nearby and there's some outdoors stuff there. But I was looking more at the cultural environment and where would I be accepted? And like, is it unusual for someone weird to be walking around in Portland? No. I felt like I had some level of safety there and anonymity and... Also, the state laws for name changes and gender changes were very progressive yeah. for that time. And other states have caught up now. But at that point, Portland was really progressive for that. So that made some sense to me. And I came back and we were going to meet in Santa Fe and spend the weekend in Santa Fe. Thought that that would be a nice, like, distraction for us, a nice little getaway. So I meet her in Santa Fe and it just doesn't go well from the very beginning. And I knew something was wrong. She starts crying and she tells me that she couldn't hold it in any longer and that she had to tell her parents. And to me, that was like devastating because this is like the darkest deepest secret that I've ever had. And I trusted she's the first person I came out to at a high level of risk. And I felt abandoned by that. I felt that was not the right choice. And I suppose like looking back on it now that maybe that was inevitable at some point, but at that time that was like devastating to me. So we broke up on the spot. I broke up with her and 
that was a little bit reactionary probably on my part. And I'm not sure I regret it. I think it was the right answer because it did violate my values yeah. to such a degree that I was so hurt by it. But uh, we broke up and that really was the catalyst for massive changes and the beginning of a lot of like very difficult decisions in my life, professionally and financially and and otherwise. So do you feel like that freed you in a sense? Yeah, I think it did. You know, we were already exploring separate bedrooms in the house and like I needed a space to be a little more safe. Yeah. That didn't include my clothes in her room. That's how it felt was that was her room. Obviously, things had already started going downhill before that happened. But, you know, saying that it freed me is, is sort of like like it was like this jubilant yeah. situation. It really was not because I did love her and it was not a happy moment. But it did thrust me into moving a little quicker in terms of like whether or not the transition was affected, it wasn't. I was already dedicated to the transition at that point. And you had said that it was really like a second puberty and all that comes with puberty, which I had never heard anyone describe. So yeah, explain that. Well, there was an awful lot of emotional side effects to the hormone therapy. The hormone therapy. Yeah. And I was prepared for some of that by my doctor. I was not prepared for not understanding it. Mm -hmm. I thought that it one day I would be emotional and I'd be like, oh, that's what that is. Mm -hmm. That's not how that works. And so it was just like the way my girlfriends describe their menstrual cycle. Yeah. And it was like this ominous feeling or this kind of welling up of this emotion and you don't know where it's coming from, but it's like you start crying or you get upset and you don't understand why you're crying or why you're upset at this person or this situation. And there was just a lot of that kind of adolescent, pubescent type yeah. of behavior that I didn't anticipate and I didn't know how to deal with. Um, one of my girlfriend's sweetheart in Portland was like, have you ever tried a bath and some chocolate and maybe some candles? And I was like, are you serious? <laughs> Who knew? But that was it. And that's what, you know, that was one of the things that helped. Well, you know, you and I were talking and you've been sharing some of your writing about all of these societal, different cultures, frankly, all around the world and for centuries, rituals and practices of being a woman. And that, you know, as you said, girls who identify as girls and grow up identifying as women have practice, you know, on all of these little things. But here you were learning about the bubble baths with the chocolate and the candles and the makeup and the contour, all of these things, right? To learn them in this new, truest version of yourself as an adult. 
Yeah, and I think the stakes are a lot higher as an adult, too, because, you know, I'm like in my mid-30s, mid to late 30s at that point, and a woman in her mid to late 30s has her act together generally with the makeup and (laughs) the clothes and the shoes, and I felt like I was at a major disadvantage and that I was like sprinting to catch up. That was really difficult, really difficult. And as a goal-oriented person, I'm observing these professional women Mm -hmm. that had their act together. And I really wanted that so badly. The body, the makeup, the hair. And it was a waiting game. Like, I can't have the body and the makeup and the hair. I could work on the body. I can work on the makeup. I have to wait a couple of years on the hair. And that was really hard. That was really hard. And I had to kind of accept being adolescent, being in that kind of middle ground. And it was scary because the goal was, I don't want to be this grotesque in-between thing. And that's a harsh way to describe it. But I didn't want to be awkward for people. And unfortunately, that's kind of where I had to reside for a while. And so I was like really wanting this like fairy trans mother to like come help me and <laughs> show me all these things. The and fairy trans mother. <laughs> um, I had some help along the way, but I just had to figure it out. So in that period where you felt and experienced that you were awkward for other people, What does it mean to move through the world when other people find you awkward or uncomfortable? Well, it was really, really hard on me. Part of the problem was that I would see how I looked in the mirror and I'd be pretty okay with it. And then I would walk out of the house or the apartment building into public and I would see these gorgeous women and be nowhere close and realized that, wow, I've got a long way to go. And then I would walk by someone who obviously did not approve of my quote-unquote choice. And even though they didn't say it, I could see it on their face, the judgment, even maybe ridicule through facial expression. And that was very difficult and I realized later, after probably a year of this, having to take all of this negativity that I was getting, and it seemed like it was constant. It was like this constant stream of microaggression. I didn't know what to do with it. And I realized that I had to stop internalizing it and that I also had to stop looking for other people's approval. Just accepting the way that someone looked at me or their nonverbal feedback as the truth was so damaging to me. And I had to take a step back and think about, well, maybe that person's having a bad day, or maybe they're not even looking at me. Maybe they're looking at something behind me, or, you know, maybe they thought about something that smelled really bad right before they looked at me. And so they had this strange look on their face how do I know that any of that has anything to do with me? And does that even matter if it did? And it doesn't. And so I had to 
stop wandering around looking for other people's approval and start feeling like my approval of myself was the only thing that mattered. Yeah, I mean, I think most people, I would say most women, and would relate to that in a sense, looking outside of yourself, sometimes to strangers for affirmation. You know, am I okay? Am I enough? Am I desirable? Which is an empty pursuit for all the reasons you just said. Yeah. So Haley went to Portland and continued her transition. But she still didn't feel ready to tell her parents. It would be two more years before she was ready to come out to them, for better or worse, and move on with her life. So she decided to write them a letter. And I just explained to them what was going on and where I was going with this and that I still loved them and that I wanted them in my life, but I needed to do this for myself. The reaction was mixed. My sister sent me a message back saying she loved me because God commanded her to. And then... My father said nothing, zero reaction, and I knew from growing up that that meant he was angry. For my mother, she, there was silence for a while, and then she reached out. And I was on this road trip through Taos, actually, at the time, and I was driving up to meet some friends in Denver. And I got this text from her saying, well, I guess... This is just the way it's going to be, and, well, let's talk about it. And to me, that was like this moment of hope, like, okay, well, she's at least willing to explore this. And so she started out kind of supportive, kind of curious, and then things got worse and worse. And she, you know, admitted to me that initially she thought that she didn't believe that the letter was sent by me that it was sent by someone else. And that was very strange to me. And then she said that, like I had sent her the Katie Couric special, Gender Revolution. I sent her a link to that and just said, you guys should watch this because it'll explain a lot of things. And her reaction to that was, why do you want us to watch this? We're not gonna watch this. And then things just kept getting worse. And it became a very negative situation. Um, I was accused of being bipolar. I was accused of being crazy by her. It was not what I wanted from my family. Of course, yeah. And I moved forward from it, and I decided to kind of distance myself from them. And I would continue having a relationship with them, but it would be more sparse. With the contact. And it just kept getting worse. When I came out on Facebook, there were all of these people from high school, my high school band director, and a bunch of people from the town that they lived in on that on my friends list. Yeah. And they all saw it. And they started asking questions. They started asking my parents questions. It was described to me as embarrassing for my parents 
And at that point, my mother told me that I was a selfish bastard for coming out and doing it in such a public way. And that really hurt me. It was, it was awful. So I, I just distanced myself from them and didn't talk to them for a while and thought maybe, maybe this would blow over. Maybe they would think about it and it never got better. So I wrote them a letter and just said that I couldn't continue to try to appease them. I couldn't continue to try to have a relationship with them and it had to end. So I suppose I broke up with my family. With Haley's biological parents no longer in the picture, someone else, very special, stepped in and took on a lasting maternal role in Haley's life. And her name is simply Mama Caroline. So Mama Caroline is my best friend Brad's mom. And she was always kind of the fun mom to hang out with in high school. I would go over to their house a lot. And him and his sisters, we were all very tight. And I talked to Brad about it because he's my best friend. And even he was surprised. (laughs) But his mom became a very obvious choice for me. That was always a safe place for some reason for me. Well, I love you you wrote about actually what you were just sharing of walking through a sea of people and not knowing who's safe and who's not and who's judging and who's looking. And I think in some conversation, she said, the reason they're looking is because you're tall and beautiful. That's what she said. <laughs> She's this Southern, you know, debutante. And she has this thick Southern accent. She always has this way with words and all these little pearls of Southern. Southern wisdom. Southern wisdom. Yes, she said, well, you're just tall and beautiful and they'll just have to get used to it. But she always was there. She was always this point of light and this positivity and helpful with helping me navigate being a woman amongst women, which I had no idea was so complicated. Yeah. So that was one of my questions. When you were living as a man, I'm sure There's a whole culture, right, around what it means to be a man, both men to men and men to women. And then as you're speaking to now, living as a woman, I'm just curious about, you know, what did you learn about being a woman that was maybe unexpected? Okay. Um, I guess what I became was, I became aware. Yeah. I became empathetic about all of these women that I had dated in my past and the the getting ready part of it. Like I would basically wash my face and put on my clothes and I would be ready to go to dinner in a previous life. And now it's like, well, what time of day are we going to dinner? And 
I need to plan my outfit and should I wash my hair or not? And what kind of makeup do I need to do for this? Is it casual or whatever? And there's, to me, there's all these considerations now. And depending on the environment, depending on where we're going or what time of day it is, I'm always concerned about making sure that my appearance is appropriate as a woman. There's all these societal norms about the way it's supposed to be, the way we're supposed to look, or what beautiful means, you know, this unattainable beauty standard. And so I never considered that before. I never considered how harsh those beauty standards are. I didn't really appreciate to get ready. Of course, I always enjoyed the final result. I appreciated that any of my female partners would spend that much time getting ready because yeah. it, it meant that they, that was important to them to look nice. But I didn't really understand how much went into that decision. And, I mean, to your point, I would imagine the media and the expectation and beauty and what's attainable, and it's it's a lot. It's overwhelming. Yeah. It's impossible, It's actually. impossible. So you're an airline pilot, and I believe, based on a Google search, so correct me if I'm wrong, 95% of pilots are men and 5% are women. Is that correct? That's about right. So you're in a cockpit, I am presuming, with a lot of men. And it used to be in a cockpit as a man with men. So how are you treated differently? Um, I feel like in the cockpit previous to this, the team environment was more talking on the same level. And now there's more explaining done. The theme is talking down. And that's been very strange to me to witness and to have that kind of um, mansplaining directed at me. But generally speaking, the, the cockpit is a not super friendly place for women. And you get stuck in this tin can for a number of hours and you have to talk about something. And so what do men talk about when they're just a bunch of men sitting around? Is that the kind of conversation that works in a mixed female and male environment? And the answer is probably not. And so that can be a bit awkward. Usually it's just quiet to begin with, and I'm the one that has to start the conversation. And so, you know, I'll break the ice with fishing or talking about skiing or trying to just talk about something that has nothing to do with gender or identity or any of these things that someone might be afraid of preaching in a conversation. And there's a lot of walking on eggshells. And so I think these folks are as afraid of me as I am of them sometimes. A lot of times what I need is an ally, right? I need someone that can just treat me like a human 
and not treat me like something they have to be careful with because they're afraid of getting in trouble at work or whatever. And so part of that allyship is being the ally and creating, I guess, a safe space for the other half of this conversation. I think that's just as important as what I need. And I think by creating that safe space, then I'm kind of cultivating my own safe space. Well, the friend who introduced us, we have a dear friend in common. She shared with me something you said along the lines of changing the world eight hours at a time in those cockpits. And to know you, to see you, to relate to you, that that is small, incremental, impactful change. Mm -hmm. And I feel like um, a lot of the rhetoric around transgender people, a lot of the anti-transgender laws being passed, all of this is stuff that's being talked about when off-duty. And a lot of the people that I fly with, and not all of them are conservative, but a lot of them come from a conservative background. And, you know, I'll hear them say things that came from Fox News or came from some very conservative point of view. And I'll know then that that's kind of what they subscribe to. And I don't want our conversation to be about politics And I certainly don't want to create any kind of awkward conversation. So these folks are people that I think sometimes the online environment where people are throwing spears about transgender people or LGBTQ people, they're doing so from the safety of their cubicle, (laughs) the safety of their little desk. And so I feel like creating that safe space presenting myself as this professional that, yes, I'm transgender, but also I'm also this professional pilot and I can fly this plane as good or better than you. So here I am and I'm here to help you. I'm here to participate in us getting from point A to point B safely, helping you if there's an emergency. And so I feel like what I have to do is chip away at these stereotypes I have to chip away at the misinformation that's out there, and I have to do it one person at a time. There are a lot of risks to doing that incorrectly, and you can make that conversation kind of awkward. So what I present is simply someone that maybe comes from a different background that, guess what, I also fish, and I also (laughs) ski, and I fly planes, And I like all these things. We have more in common than maybe you think we do. It's just a matter of being human. And so much of these anti-LGBTQ laws and rhetoric is about dehumanizing someone. I think just by being present, by being a participant in this cockpit, that what I'm doing is showing them that Maybe I'm not someone they need to be afraid of. So I was thinking about this. Um, I did a documentary film with Chaz Bono years ago. He was very public in his transition. He talked about Caitlyn Jenner. But in the past, what is it, 18 months, 
the conversation, the dialogue, the divisiveness, very specifically around being transgender, transgender rights, all of it seems to be everywhere. So I'm curious for you, does that make it harder? Does it make it easier because you have more allies and more people advocating or is it neutral? Because my guess is five years ago, the climate was very different than it is today. I think there was less awareness five years ago than there is now. And the awareness is fueling some negativity. Yeah. And it's becoming a topic, a hot topic. I feel like it's a more difficult environment in general now than it was four or five years ago. Because people, I would imagine, are spewing visceral hate in public ways in which I'm sure was happening years ago, but not every day on news channels. Right. And I think people are empowered by public figures that get up and say these really awful things they do these things or they promote these laws in a way that's very harmful to people that are different than them. I think there are other people who see this activism in Congress and elsewhere. And by activism, I mean people in Congress that are doing negative things or making decisions or promoting laws that are detrimental to LGBTQ people or people of color or whoever, and the base there sees that and becomes empowered by it. And it's a cycle of negativity that kind of feeds into more negativity. And my hope is that eventually this will pass. I don't know, though, you know, when that will happen. All I can say is that it's not going to change who I am or what I do for work or who I associate with or my approach to life. So I hope that the more of us that feel this way, the less that this kind of rhetoric continues. What do you think is the greatest misunderstanding about transgender people? Well, there's quite a few, but This idea about bathrooms, that transgender people are some sort of sexual deviant or a transgender person is going to harm their child or something in the bathroom, that is not, that's not correct. (laughs) That's not accurate, of course. Also, like this idea of transgender athletes, that they're this massive threat to, especially female athletes athletes and and female sports. I don't think there's enough scientific evidence out there to really make a strong determination on that. For me, I'm not willing to say that a transgender female athlete may or may not have an advantage over a cisgender female athlete. I can say from my own personal experience, though, that I am exponentially more weak than I was from a muscular standpoint. And I, I don't feel like it's fair to say that a transgender athlete has the same strength as they did before they transitioned. And so there needs to be more 
research done on that before. They make a bunch of decisions as to as to how transgender athletes compete. You know, another thing we've talked about is that as you are stepping out, beginning to share your story, the impetus of that is creating positive change and being a change maker and agent of change. What I have heard you say is that you want to do it in a way that is not combative or contentious or coming from a place of anger. So how do you create change in that sort of human to human way, which I personally think is how change happens, right? But what does that look like to you? Well, I don't think that I can change the world. I think I can change a little bit of someone's opinion. Maybe someone has a piece of information that isn't quite correct for one reason or another or an assumption about me or other people like me. I think that the way that people change or a society changes in this regard is that I have an impact on one person at a time. And my hope is that when I impact one person, that maybe they talk to other people that they've been talking to and they say, well, I flew with this person and I don't think that what you said is right. Or I don't think that some of what we thought was correct for this reason or that. Or they just speak positively about me as a person or about my skills as a pilot, that's how change happens. It's going to be one heart and one mind at a time. And that takes an awful lot of patience and resilience. And that's where I'm at with my quest on this is that I need to be patient with it. You know, not everyone is going to like me. Not everyone is going to see eye to eye with me or accept me the way I am. And that's just part of life. That sounds like such a boring answer. (laughs) But I think continuing to stand tall and be positive. A lot of people are very upset about the current trajectory of our country on either side of this. And I'm hopeful, especially of our country, that we're going to come out of this stronger not divided. Although that's all we kind of see at the moment is division and anger. So we talked earlier about belonging and what it means to belong. At this point in your life, both professionally and personally, what does belonging mean to you? So I guess on a personal level, all I ever want is to be invisible. What that means is I want the subconscious reaction to be female when someone sees me or hears me or interacts with me. I just want to blend in to society. Now, I know that there are certain cues about me that won't necessarily always blend in. There's a certain amount of graciousness that people can engage in towards me that would make a situation not awkward. Like, for instance, someone recognizes me as transgender for some reason. And instead of 
asking me about it, just taking a cue. Well, she's got long hair. She's wearing women's clothing. So maybe what I should do is assume that her pronouns are she and just use she. But that's not what other people always do. And there are places, environments that are more conservative than others or more religious than others where the pronouns can be used to harm someone else. Purposely using he for me is it's harmful to me. I guess on a personal level, a societal level, just trying with the pronouns, just picking up the cues. If someone looks like they're trying, at least trying to be female, then maybe she is the right place to start uh, with the pronoun. You know, that's just one example of what it means to be inclusive and what it means to help someone feel like they belong in society. But there are people that have purposely used the incorrect pronoun for me even after I've corrected them. And that's hard for me even now after five years of this being out in the world. It's harmful and it hurts still. You know, that feels very exclusive. That feels like I'm being rejected. It's interesting. I think a lot of my struggles now have more to do with being female in a male-dominated workplace than being trans female in a male-dominated workplace. And to me, that's kind of a win, personally. (laughs) But also, I see like there's a lot of work to do in that regard. And one of the things I mentioned was like having things explained to me. And it's like being talked down to instead of being like, maybe I do need instruction. Maybe I did screw something up, for instance, in the simulator or something. And I need, and there's a learning point with something. We can have an intelligent conversation about that. It doesn't need to be like explained down to me. You know, some of these companies don't have any groups whatsoever for LGBTQ folks. I don't think a work group that recognizes LGBTQ people is necessarily in and of itself being inclusive, but, you know, at least having the ability, an outlet for people to come and have a safe space and a place for people to interact and to network with other people who are also in the same type of work environment, um, that can be very helpful. I've worked at places where that doesn't exist at all. You know, it can be hard to find other people like you. What do you hope people take away from your story? I really want, ultimately, for people to understand that I'm just a human being, that it's not my intention to harm anyone or change them or their way of life. Just because... I believe one thing or I live in a certain way and they don't doesn't mean that one of us is human and one of us isn't. Thank you to Haley for sharing your story with us. You know, this was her first time speaking publicly about her story. And I think 
she did an incredible job. Currently, Haley is living in her beloved Taos, New Mexico, and she is flying internationally as a pilot. If you'd like to connect with her, you can follow her on Instagram at Haley Go Lightly, which we will include in our show notes. In 2021, President Biden lifted the ban on transgender people serving in the military. This policy change will create opportunity for young people with dreams of flying high, just like Haley. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard of Podkit Productions. And that was our associate producer, Tara Daigle. And that was our editor, composer, slash sound designer, John LaSala. And this is Kimmy Colt. So until next time, take care of yourself and each other. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.